uh, talking about how does heaven relate to us? How do we take this thing that sometimes seems so ethereal and put skin to it? Actually make it something that we understand or that is applicable to our lives now. And obviously, it's a great thing that we can think about heaven someday. But how does it affect your life and how does it affect my life now? And, and how does it change us? How, how can we look towards heaven and have today be different? And so the main verse that we've been going through and looking at and going back to is John 3.13. Jesus is talking and this is what he says. He says, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And so this is the verse where Jesus says, I know what heaven is like because I'm from there. And I'm the only one who can say that, by the way. Um, but I think heavenly minded. All of us, we have to think earthly minded because that's all we know. But Jesus, he thinks um, by what has happened to him, what he understands based off of eternity. So we take time and we relate things to time and he relates things to eternity. And so if I have a problem and it is based off of the understanding of what my uh, 36 years, I'm 36, um, 36 years has showed me, that problem might seem somewhat big. But Jesus can look at a problem and base it based off of eternity. I mean, that's the difference of taking like a... Um, colored food thing and dropping it in a glass of water and saying, wow, I can actually see the color changing the water and then taking that same color tablet and dropping it in the ocean. And there's absolutely nothing that you can see there. And that's the difference between what we see a problem as based off of time and space and what Jesus can say things look like based off of eternity. Because there's so much more than what we see and what we understand, what we've experienced. And so that's sort of where we've been. That's the basis of what we've been talking about. This morning we're going to be in John 14 and John 21. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, if you don't, we have big Bibles on the screens for you. And this is what it says, Jesus speaking to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions or rooms is the, a better translation. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I love this because Jesus calls heaven my father's house. What an amazing uh, term for what Jesus is talking about in heaven. Verse 3, it says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you will be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, um, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Thomas... As long as you know me, all you need is me. All you need to do is believe in me, to trust in me, and I guarantee that you have a spot in my Father's house. Going to John 21, verses 1 through 17. Now, this is post-resurrection. After Jesus has died, he's been resurrected. And it says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you also. They went out immediately and got into the boat. 
and that night they caught nothing. It's a bad long night on the sea when you catch nothing. If anyone here is a fisher, you know it's frustrating when you don't catch anything, right? No? Okay. I'm not a fisher, but I've heard fishermen, whatever. Okay, <laughs> it goes on to say, but in the, when the morning came, Jesus was standing on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, thanks for rubbing it in. No. <laughs> said, no. And he said to them, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, their, so they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitudes of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, who wrote the book, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he jumped into the water. You got to love Peter. He puts on more clothes when he jumps into the water. Um, Not the sharpest tool in the shed, but Jesus loved him anyways. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. As soon as they, came, they had come to land, they saw a fire and coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. So Jesus has now made, he got fish from somewhere because he's God, and um, they're bringing in the fish. Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish of which you have caught. Simon Peter went and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. Yeah, he actually counted them or somebody did. I don't know. Um, And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Then Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, after this, there's a long, awkward silence full of chewing, but no talking. None of them want to say anything. So they're just all chewing, maybe looking at each other. That's good food. (laughs) This is good fish. Jesus made it. It's perfect. Always. There's long, awkward silence, and then Jesus engages in this, uh, this dialogue with Peter, and this is what he says. So, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said it a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I want to talk to you this morning from the subject, the Father's house. But let's start in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I'm excited that you have a word for every single one of us, Lord, that you have appointed us to be here, Lord, and that you want to change our lives, Lord. That is your desire for us to become more like you have created us to be, Lord, more like the plan and the blueprint that you have set up from the beginning of time uh, with the skills and and the abilities and the gifts that every single one of us have, have been given, Lord. And I pray that through this sermon, Lord, through your word and what you want to say this morning, that we would become more like you, Jesus, that we would become 
become the person that you want us to be, that we could uh, engage with people in our communities and in our circles and in our neighborhoods and in our families in a way that only we could, Lord, and that we would have the tools and gain more tools this morning to do that through your name in the way that only you can do, Jesus. So we are excited and we seek this, Lord, as we're here and we're um, listening and longing for your word, Jesus. So we ask these things and we believe them and expect expect them in your name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. You guys remember high school? Like looking back at high school, some of y'all are like, yeah, I was there yesterday, right? Or not yesterday, yesterday was Saturday. Hopefully you guys weren't there, but I I don't know if this happened to you. Uh, It happened to me, so hopefully it can relate to somebody else here. But did you ever have that awkward moment in the cafeteria where you've got your plastic tray and um, you don't know where you're going to sit? And it's sort of like, oh my goodness, uh, you're like, your jello shaking, your thoughts are rolling all over the place because you're not exactly sure where you should be sitting. Maybe you've never experienced that or you never experienced that because you were a uh, captain of the football team or you were on the basketball team or you're student body president. So you never worried about that. Well, I did. So um, maybe you relate to it. Maybe you won't. But I remember like stalling as long as I could because my friends were in class or they hadn't got out yet or they're sick. And I'm like, oh no, the place where I usually sit is not going to be the place where I sit. And so I'm talking to the lady with a hairnet and trying to just stall, trying to figure out because once you're done talking, you've got your stuff, you've got to commit to a place and, and you've got to know where you're going because if you just stand there, then you are even worse and it's even more awkward. But I think we can all agree that is an awkward situation and it's a primary fear for every single person um, not knowing or not having a place to fit in, not um, feeling like there's somewhere I can go. And what we do is we'll just make stuff up. (laughs) We don't know where we're supposed to be. I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit it. And I've done this before. But like, have you ever been at a conference or something and you're waiting to get in, but you don't have anyone there to talk to? So you like totally pretend like you're on the phone. Some of you have done it. I've done it too. Or you like have to get on your phone and like do something and pretend like you're texting just because you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. And, and you're like, oh, someone else did that at one point. Yes, I have. So you don't have to feel too bad. Um, but we'll like do these things. And if we don't feel like we have a place to fit in, then we'll do anything to avoid that situation. In fact, I think there's people who don't come to church on a Sunday morning because they don't feel like they have a place to fit in, that they don't know where they would sit if they... And that's sort of why we do the barbecues, because we want people to get to know each other. So everybody feels like they have a place to fit in, and because we don't want people to feel that way. And and we're supposed to be the church where we are inviting, where we're a safe place for people to be. Um... But maybe that's you, or maybe you've been there, or maybe there's someone who's not sitting here because that's where they've been before. Maybe there's somebody that you know, and and you've invited them to church, and this is the response you get. No, I can't go there because I'm not a hypocrite. A translation of what they're saying is, I can't go there because I don't act like church people. I'm not like you. I'm not like church people. And it's the sad thing is a lot of us in the church, we sort of gravitate this idea that how I am on Sunday morning is the way that I am all week long. And I can tell you, for me at least, that that's not true all the time. Like, I'm not always like this. I'm not like last Sunday after, the, um, after church and the Seahawks, who I'm a fan of, lost to the Buccaneers. I was not praising the Lord and saying, well, thank Jesus that we have another day. I was kicking kittens and punching puppies. Like, I, I, I'm sorry. 
No, just kidding. I would never punch a puppy, but, um, but it's just, <laughs> let's move on. John 14, uh, we find ourselves in this situation where Jesus says these words. And actually, if you know about Jewish culture, this is actually a Jewish farewell discord um, or a discourse. Um, in Jewish custom, and we see this in the Old Testament a couple of times, when an elder, a father or grandfather, was getting to the age where they believed or they knew that they were going to die soon, um, they would get the entire family together and they would discuss lots of things with the family. They would start talking about their passing and then they would talk about the legacy that they lived and making sure that the people that they were leaving behind were going to be okay. And, and then they would pass the baton on to the next generation. And so John 13 through 17 is actually Jesus's farewell discord. And he starts it in John 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, in this moment, the disciples' hearts aren't troubled. Things are actually going very well. This isn't the place where uh, Jesus is about to die or he's already been arrested and he's yelling out to the disciples, don't worry about it, don't freak out, it's going to be okay. It's, that's not the situation. Things are going great for them. Jesus is 30-something years old in the middle of his life. They're not thinking he's about to die, but Jesus knows that the days are coming when things will affect you. And you will find trouble. Now, trouble actually isn't a very good word anymore. In in Old English, trouble, it was very significant. It was very dire. Um, Today, it's a really light term. It's all over the place. I mean, you've got it in games, board games, trouble. Or in pop songs like Taylor Swift, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Right? Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I could keep going, right? But... We all, <laughs> yeah, I just sang Taylor Swift in church. Um, but really, if you look at this word, what Jesus is trying to communicate is, it's the word terrasso, and it really means anguish. It means, uh, actually, the exact translation is striking your spirit with fear or doubt or anxiousness and distress. So what Jesus is saying here is, don't let your heart be distressed. Don't allow your mental state to be a state of turbulence in life where it seems like everything around you is a storm and you can't see. Don't allow, when you get to this point of emotion, don't stay there. And so Jesus, he's saying, don't stay depressed. Don't stay in this state of anxiousness and pain and turmoil in your life. Don't be depressed like that. And, you know, that's great for Jesus to say, and I'm all for that. But it's sort of like when the doctor, you're sick and you go to the doctor and he says, don't be sick. It's like, well, thanks a lot. Like, uh, that's great that you said that. But can you do something for me? Like, can I get a prescription? Like, you're saying don't be sick. I don't want to be sick. Jesus here is saying, don't be troubled. It's like, okay, I don't want to be troubled. But you even mentioning being troubled is making me troubled. So why are you saying all these things? Can you give me something? Can you find an antidote? Can you give me a prescription, please? And what we see is that Jesus, he does give us a prescription. He does give us an antidote and how to solve anguish and this fear and pain in life. What he talks about and what he says, look at it, it's heaven. He talks about heaven. He talks about his father's house. He says, this is the antidote that you need. And he takes the title of heaven and he replaces it with this idea of a father's house. 
Now, this is a family term. Maybe it's not for you, but when it comes to Jesus talking about it, it's what you would think a father's house should be. It's a place of acceptance. It's a place where you can go and feel safe. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the father's house. And then he goes on in the next verse, for in my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would told you, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to come back for you. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if he uses this word trouble, a specific word, it's actually a phrase. It's a unique word that he uses there. And he's talking when things are going good, when everything's great, when nothing, no problems are going on, wouldn't it be interesting after all the turmoil and anguish, if he came back and said the same word, or he talked about the opposite of that after he was resurrected, and we know the disciples went through all that? Well, interestingly enough, he does that. And this is the only two times that Jesus uses this word towards um, people or his disciples specifically. Because in Luke twenty four thirty eight it says, this is after he's come back. The disciples are scared to death in the upper room. They don't know what's going on. They're obviously in the turmoil that Jesus said, don't be afraid of. And what he says in Luke 24, 38 said to them, why are you troubled? It's the exact same word. And it's the only two times he uses it towards people. So he goes from do not be troubled to I told you not to be troubled. So why are you troubled? And he came back. He even came back. Like, this was almost like prophetic that he says, I will come back for you, so don't be troubled. And then he comes back for them, and he says, why are you still troubled? So this word is so significant, Tarasso. Um, and then it says, I will prepare a place for you. And it says, I have many mansions. And, like, maybe there's big houses in heaven. I mean, that'd be cool if we all had really big houses. But and that's really not what it's talking about here. And talking about family and then talking about all of us having our own houses with garages where we just drive in and shut the door and then go do our own thing. Then open the door and come back out. That doesn't bring this idea of father or family or of acceptance or oneness. But really, in Jewish culture, you didn't have your own house. In Jewish culture, when you got married, instead of going out and getting your own house... You would just add on to dad's house. You'd add on another house onto his house or another room onto his house. And all the teenagers are like, oh, no, I want to get away from my parents. And then all the parents are like, oh, no, I want them to get away from No. Um, but it's this idea of family, not that you're going to go away and have your own house. It's a, this idea that we're all going to be together and you will have a place to be. There is plenty of room for you. And so Jesus is saying, when you suffer mental distress, when you're going through hell, realize that the antidote to your problems is looking to the Father's house and understanding that you will always be accepted. And it brings up this idea of where in the world does trouble come from anyways? Where does this anguish, especially in the life of a believer or someone who, who um, subscribes to Jesus and everything that he's about, where does this come from? And the answer the most prominent answer is ourselves. It comes from within. The ideas of guilt and shame, of condemnation, they are the greatest tools of the dark side. If you've ever wondered once in your life, do I fit in God's family anymore? 
does God still have a plan for me? And maybe you know that you fit in. You know that you're good and that Jesus has a place for you. But what you're really thinking is, I know what I've done. So I've got a room in the corner of the basement with a drippy faucet. And so that's where I'm going to be. And yeah, I get to go to heaven, but the place where I'm going to be stinks. That's not the case. That is not what God's talking about. You do fit in. And the question is, why do we have these thoughts? Because we don't have them when everything's going well. The only time that we experience this trouble is when we are screwing things up or when we're not following through in the way that we know we should be or we're not being the person that we know that God's called us to be and we're grieving the Holy Spirit in our lives and we start to ask this question, do I really fit in anymore? Is there really a place for me? Is there a place, gosh, the enemy will tell us time and time again and maybe he's told you and maybe he tried to tell you this this morning you shouldn't go to church because of what you've done, and you have no business being there. But Jesus says, I have a place for you. We fit in. You fit in. And you know, maybe you do know that you're loved. Maybe that everything is great in your life, and you're much like the disciples in John 14, where, where you're feeling good about yourself, and that's great. But Jesus knows that there is a time coming when you might experience this. Because none of us bat a thousand. All have fallen short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Jesus, he knew that these disciples one day were going to need to pull out that podcast and press play on that sermon. Because one day they were going to need to hear this again. And so what does he do? He repeats it. And he says, troubled, you are tr- don't be troubled. Why are you troubled? So he repeats it. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm good, like just keep it for a rainy day because it might come. None of us are batting a thousand. So Jesus, he says, when those thoughts come, when you feel that anguish, think of the father's house and understand that you still fit in. And when you start to think about this concept of the Father's house and that you always fit in and that you have a place that is there for you, it really makes all the other stories or a lot of stories in the rest of the Bible start to fit together and become more clear. Uh, One of the prominent ones would be the story of the prodigal son. And if you don't know the story of the prodigal son, there's two sons in Luke 15. They're both in a father's house. Uh, One of them, the younger son, This says he wants to be rebellious. He's sick of being with his dad. He doesn't want to listen to him anymore. He doesn't want to obey his rules. So I want to leave. I'm going to take all of the money that you're going to give me one day. I don't even care if you're dead or you're alive. Just let me get out of here. And I'm going to go. And what he does is he goes with all the money. And then he wastes it all on sin and senseless living and doing all these terrible things. And when he comes to his senses... He realizes he doesn't even have it as good as the pigs that he's now having to tend to. And he thinks, I could at least go and be an employee for my dad. Because there's no way I now have a place at the father's house. I mean, what a perfect example of human nature on display. Uh, This is what we do. We always do this. We default to this thinking that I've failed, I've faltered, I've messed up, so now I don't fit in, and maybe I can be a hired servant on, or, or maybe I could go and, and, and make it, but I'll never have the same status as I did before. Some Christians would call that humility. Jesus calls it pride. 
And the reason he calls it pride is because what you're saying is that you think that you're in that family because you've done good enough or because you've kept the line, that you've kept status quo. That has nothing to do with you. But then you start thinking, if I do something bad, well, then I must be out. Well, that's pride because it's not about you. It's about what Jesus did for you. You have to know that you are part of his family. And what's so great about family is family's family no matter what. Like, I'm part of my family even if I'm annoying. Like, I'm a fed of place. Like, that's just who I am. My sister's part of my family no matter what. Even when she's annoying, she's never annoying to me. But, but we're just, we're family. And so, so we'll always be there for each other. And you don't choose it. It just is what it is. And the fact is that God, he came up with this concept. And so I might understand that my family is my family no matter what. But when it comes to God's understanding, it is so much greater than my understanding. And I know that it's unconditional. And so how much greater is it when God, who came up with the concept and knows it fully, how connected he is to every single one of us? I mean, you look at this prodigal son, and he's walking home. He's wasted all of his dad's money. He's wasted, he's ran his family's name through the dirt. He's smelly, he's shameful, he's sinful. And the father comes running at him in full sprint, like his father just about, like the son just got back from Harvard with a PhD and a bag full of money to pay back his dad. Uh, that, that's what the father's doing. Does that make sense? No, like he just came back from the Super Bowl parade. That. The father is running because all he wants the son to know is you still have a place. And the significance of him putting a ring on his son's finger is you are still my son. See, it all starts to make more sense. The message of Luke 15 is really that we all still have a place in the father's house. And you will always be family. I think there's so many people and we experience, and maybe you're here this morning, and you're torn by your failures and your shortcomings, that you feel the fear, uh, the fear of failing, that you'll never measure up, that you'll never be the mother or the father that you think that you should be, or the husband or the wife or the provider, and you feel so crushed under that type of pressure of what you should be or what you want to be or what the Lord's called you to be. And what Jesus is saying is, please, just stop and realize that you have a place at the Father's table. And so coming into the story about Peter in John 21, and Peter, he's troubled. Because you and I know, because we've seen history and we can read the book of Acts, that Peter has a huge prominent role to play in Jesus' plan for the redemption of humanity. But Peter doesn't know that yet. And he's certain at this point, or pretty much certain, that he has lost that place. Because we know that Jesus said to him, You are the rock on which I will build my church, and I have this amazing plan for you. But I can almost guarantee that at this point, Peter is looking back and saying, I no longer have that destiny because I've screwed up too much. And by John 21, listen, Peter is, he's completely blew it. By human standards, he has no business having anything to do with Jesus anymore. He left him, he denied him, he gave up on him. And it was so bad that he denied him with expletives to a junior high girl at a fire pit. I mean, that's how bad and how desperate he, he was and how fearful he was. Um, he just, you can't get much lower than this. And by John 21, Jesus, he's died and he's rose again. 
And you almost wonder if Peter would even want to see Jesus at this point. What he would do if he saw him, if he would even want to talk to him. And so what does Peter do? He says, I'm, I'm going fishing. And it's amazing because he's such a leader and we know that Peter was a fisherman before. Really what Peter is saying, the significance of this is, I'm going back to the old way of life. I can't deal with this anymore. My trouble is too great. My anguish is too much. I can't see past this and I can't get over this. I know I don't have a place at God's table anymore. I can't do this anymore. And so I'm going back to my life before Jesus. I'm going fishing. Have you ever gone fishing? I mean, I'm not talking about physically with a reel. I'm talking about emotionally. Have you ever gone fishing spiritually where you say, yeah, maybe I'm here in church, but I'm in the right place externally, but I'm definitely in the wrong place internally? Maybe you can lift your hands and have a Bible in one, but you know you've got a fishing rod in the other, and you're halfway down the dock, and you just want to check out. I think a lot of people get there where we think, I, I can't measure up anymore. That's exactly where Peter is. He's saying, I can't do this anymore because I don't do no longer fit. I can't be part of the Father's house. I, I can't be at his table. And sure, you might be smiling, you might be nodding, but you know you're just playing the game because you've gone fishing. And I think it's such a hard thing. When I was a, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and when you're a youth pastor, the kids, they'll just come up to you and they don't hide it at all. They're just like, I'm not coming anymore because I want to do bad things. Like, I mean, they just come up and tell you. Like, they're not hiding their fishing pole in their tackle box. They're like, hey, look, I've got it and I'm proud of it. But when it comes to us as adults, like, we're super sneaky. And we will just, like, hide it and say everything's okay. Um, and you know that we do that. We're subtle. We're sneaky about things. Um, but I used to think that the answer is to grab that pole and start knocking them over the head. You will not leave. How dare you? You should be ashamed of yourself. Go read the Bible and pray for five hours straight and then get back here. And don't you dare ever say that again. That's what I used to think. But when you look at John 21... You see that Jesus does nothing like that. And let's just say for the record, Jesus and Peter both know what's going on here. Peter knows exactly what he's doing. Peter knows that he's checking out, and Jesus knows that he's checking out. And I think he knows some of us are ready to check out as well. But Jesus, he steps to the shore, and he says, Children! Again, a family term. Children, a term of acceptance. Kids, the ones that I love, have you caught any fish? No, that's right. Because there's nothing to go back to. Children, how's it working out for you checking out? Children, how's it working out for you, for you running away from all the things that I've called you to? Children, how's that condemnation working in your life? No. 
We have nothing. Jesus says, okay, well, you need me, so just move that net like five feet. (laughs) Five feet. Can I tell you, we're not talking about fish here. We're talking about God and people. Five feet. What Jesus is saying is, you still need me. And I can still produce miracles in your life. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. But I'm going to come to the place. And here's the amazing thing. Because Peter finds out, John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, he loses his mind. He like just jumps into the water. They're almost to the shore anyways. He doesn't even know what he should be doing. But what he does know is the reason that Jesus is there. And can I tell you that Jesus loves all the disciples. He loves everybody. But there are times where he will point you out because he loves you. And because he has a call in your life. And this really, all the disciples are there. But this is really about Jesus and Peter. Because Peter's the one that said, I'm checked out and I'm going fishing. And Jesus knew the plan that he had for Peter. And he knew that Peter didn't think that he had a place anymore. So Jesus is there at the place on the shore where he originally called Peter. In a place where he knew would be significant to Peter. Because he loves Peter. And he knows what would affect him the most. And he says, children, I accept you. I love you. See, Peter, he's undone. He's overcome by all the pain and suffering and grief and uh, things that he had done in his life. And Jesus comes to this place where Peter is trying to run away and he seeks him out. And where most of us would start rebuking, Jesus is cooking. What? He's serving. I mean, shouldn't Jesus be like having a prayer meeting? Shouldn't he be throwing a book at Peter and saying, you better read this so you don't screw up again? I mean, that's what a lot of us would think. We need to all get together, but this isn't what happened. Jesus is fixing breakfast, and then while he's fixing breakfast, he's fixing Peter. He's cooking breakfast like dad on Saturday morning. And then he tells them, this is so cool, he tells them to bring the fish they caught, but then he doesn't use the fish because God doesn't need us, he wants us. He starts to serve them breakfast and no one wants to say anything, they're just all chewing. But Jesus is feeding Peter, he's nourishing him, he's restoring him, he's supplying him, he's resourcing him, he's strengthening him, he's assuring him, he's comforting him, he's caring for him and when breakfast is over peter is asked the question by jesus and jesus listen jesus never asks questions because he's wondering right and he's not like peter do you really love me because i'm really dealing with something here like <laughs> jesus says things and asks questions to make a point jesus is making a point because peter's life was fixed and healed by breakfast. And obviously it was because of Jesus. And Jesus gave him breakfast. But the conduit of that was fixing breakfast. And I, a lot of times, I think that we will have to, we'll think that we have to wait till Sunday morning. Or a prayer meeting. In order for us to be fixed. For God to really restore our lives. And I believe that he wants to fix us at breakfast on a Sunday morning. 
at the egg and I. Or when you're sitting at Starbucks sipping on your coffee. And we think, nope, got to wait until Sunday. That's not how it works. Sunday's great, and it's awesome that we can fellowship together, and the Lord can give us a word. But he wants to give you a word at breakfast. He wants to heal you. He wants to help you and restore you when you wake up in the morning, when you're in the shower, when you're putting on the wrong sock or your shirt on backwards. He wants to fix you right where you are. And Jesus, he breaks the silent and asks Peter these questions. And what Jesus is really saying is, Peter, I love you. So do not be troubled, Jesus, church. Because you have a place at the Father's house. For in the Father's house, there are plenty of rooms. And they aren't separate. And they aren't in the the, the dark, scary basement. You have a place right next to him because he loves you, he has loved you, and he always will love you. And you might be out of, in a boat out to sea, you might be on a dock, and Jesus will find you. You can't get away from him. Some of you are like, why are you saying this? Because this is exactly what I was dealing with. It's because Jesus is sitting on the shore of your soul. And he's calling out to you. And he's saying, have you caught any fish? And you're thinking, no. And he's saying, put your nets on the other side. You'll be driving down the freeway, and then all of a sudden you find out Jesus is sitting shotgun. And you'll feel his presence, and you'll know he's there. And he will heal you right there in that place while you're struggling, not happy with your life or your decisions. Because he has a place for you. You are his son. You are his daughter. And he's running to you because he loves you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. Not because of what you started, but because of what he completed. And last week we talked about on earth as it is in heaven. And the truth is, Jesus said, pray this way. Pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And if you have a place in his house in heaven, then I promise you, you have a place on his house on earth. You have a place here. We're all dealing with stuff. We all are walking this out. That's why we call ourselves Jesus Church. Because we want to be his church. We want to be about him and what he was about. And he's about making what was in heaven come to earth. And so that's what we're doing. And if that's true, then you always have a place here. Regardless of what you've done. Because the Father has promised you a place at his table. In fact, so much so that we're asking you to eat with us. (laughs) We're having a barbecue. Would you stand with me and we're going to pray?